Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. On today's episode, we feature Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson, directors of Anomalisa. So here we are again. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined, of course, by Steve Henderson. And I uh, think it's safe to say that when we started this podcast venture nearly four years ago to the day, that uh, we never would have predicted that of all the people to show up on our guest roster, Charlie Kaufman would be among them. Not even in his wildest dreams would he have imagined being on the Squiggly podcast, Ben. Yes, of course, Anomalisa has now been out in the UK for a little while. Most uh, big cities will have a cinema playing it. And yes, we've both seen it. I think we're both of the... uh, Similar mindset that it's a very nice piece of work. We'll, we'll chat about that shortly. Mm-hmm. But, uh, in the meantime, the usual sort of uh, roundings up of what's been going on in the animation world. Of course, last time we spoke, it was the eve of the eve of the British Animation Awards. So that's now kind of uh, old news. But uh, <laughs> it happened. It was a nice night. It certainly did. Did you have a good evening? I did. It was nice. It was wonderful to see people. Mm-hmm. Uh, see people and i had no giant gaping issues with uh, the award winners some were definitely surprises uh some were definitely projects that i had absolutely no familiarity with and some of those were very good i thought the moth collective uh videos i, I had been aware of i hadn't actually seen them before um i thought those had some very lovely visual ideas there's some absolutely superb work coming from that uh, that collective, it's a nice, um, they create some very nice stuff. And uh, very glad also to see George Sander Jackson's project win the uh, best documentary. Because those are, again, really, really very good films. It's a very powerful series of films and a great mm. use of animation to tell those stories. And of course, we have a feature on that one where all the filmmakers sort of weigh in on their experience with it. And that's the uh, stories of postnatal depression. And then some stuff that. As there is, you know, the the bigger gap between these awards, some of these contenders are actually like, well, these have been around for ages. Yeah. Yeah. But again, still nice to see and and good to know that stuff that was a hit two years ago remains liked and remains sort of uh, popular. And they sort of, what was one that I, oh, uh, that James video that Ainsley did, for example, I think that was nearly a two year old film at this point. Right, at least like a year and a half. Absolutely, yeah, but that's a timeless piece. That's a lovely, lovely piece of work. Uh, Great song, but also nice animation. It's not really going to date very much. But uh, yeah, you're right about these things coming around every two years. Because when I was interviewing the uh, uh, best undergrads, they were like, I was asking them questions about the films, and they were like, well... I forgot all about my film. I'd kind of, <laughs> kind of just had a job for a year and a half. I just <laughs> forgot all about it, and all of a sudden it's up for an award. So, uh, yeah, there was some, some nice little uh, kind of for them to be recognized after thinking that their film had been and gone. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's back, you know, and it's it's up for a, a, a BAA award. So a good night was had by most. Mm. And I'm sure, you know, for the people who uh, were nominated and didn't win, they had a very good time as well. Everyone was treated very nice. Oh, yeah. What else have you been up to animation-y uh, exploits wise? Well, I think you'll be pleased to, uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, it seems that our suggestions have been noted, and uh, the day after the last podcast was released, they released another Ghostbusters trailer. 
Mm-hmm. And it actually, it's it's a massive improvement. They haven't improved the crappy CGI ghosts and stuff, but it is, seems a lot funnier. It seems a lot closer to the sort of the Ghostbusters that we might have been promised. Have you seen it? I think I did, yeah. I, I did see a different trailer. Yeah. I I've, have found in all of the bits of footage that I've seen that there is something leaving me a little cold about the quality of the written gags, like the dialogue-based jokes. Yeah. But I, I'm a big fan of the idea of, you know, someone like Kristen Wiig as a Ghostbuster as a, just a funny idea. Uh, I had quite high hopes mm. for um, uh, Girl Winston. Girl um, Winston. <laughs> I don't I don't know the new names of the characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Not Peter Venkman and Not Egon, <laughs> Mr. Not Janine. But because uh, I saw the, the actress in uh, Trainwreck, uh, she has like a little scene in the movie Trainwreck, which I mm-hmm. thought was very funny. It's just a couple of lines and I thought she was very funny in it. And I think her lines in these trailers are the ones that are actually like the most like cringy. Like they've given her like these really belabored, obvious jokes. And kind of, I think, maybe done her a bit of a disservice. Hmm. I expect that that probably will happen, is they'll probably do another animated series out of it. All right, okay. Well, I, I haven't read anything to that effect. I'm just using my magical crystal ball of cynical <laughs> milking out the property as much as we can. Yeah, it's more a tick list than a uh, crystal ball, isn't it? Pretty much. I mean, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure there's a toy line... Yeah. Lined up. I sn- what did I see today? We were watching something on um, uh, 4OD. Um, it was a f***ing vacuum cleaner. Okay. What and it's it? like the Ghostbusters music is playing in the commercial. And it's like, you know, this vacuum cleaner has eight types of suction. And buy this because blah, 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 blah. Ghostbusters out in cinemas. What the f***? Does it suck up ghosts? So I guess that the wheels are kind of turning already. If they're going in hard and fast with the old... Uh, Right. Uh, product placement and endorsement. <laughs> Another uh, sort of cynical reboot that I got a whiff of uh, this morning midst our kind of early uh, Sunday morning lollygagging. Been watching some uh, some cartoons and I had a little look at that new Powerpuff Girls. Did you see the big parade that they had? I, d- I did not, no. Yeah, they had a big launch parade. Um, and they have these massive, like... Uh, uh, you know, Thanksgiving parade, uh, you know, bubbles, buttercup and blossom. Um, and all the girls were like dressed, you know, carrying these big balloons. And, you know, there was like a, a, a group of bubbles fans and a group of uh, blossom fans. And and they all turned on each other. It was it was absolute carnage. And then did like a big creature come and start destroying the city and <laughs> yeah, ruin the day. Exactly, exactly. That damn monkey. <laughs> and his monkey shines. How uh, How was it? Well, it's it's odd. It's it's sort of what I suspected it would be, which is it's there's something about the nature of the the shows that are on that network at the moment. There's a certain um, house style, I guess. Okay, like the a show can have its own individuality, but within very very strict parameters. And I'm sure that there were people who would like come up to me and punch me in the snout. For daring to suggest that there were visual similarities between a show like Clarence and a show like Steven Universe. <laughs> Woe betide me. Yep. But honestly, if you really kind of look at the character designs for all the peripheral characters, all the kind of like extended universe characters, there's a little bit of like flexibility with like the main characters of these shows. 
But generally speaking, I think they've, they've hit this formula of how to design characters to animate with absolute efficiency and knock out shows, maybe. Or maybe they just want to kind of create a sort of singular universe that will tie everything together and keep a certain visual consistency to that. So it may, maybe it's easier just to animate them abroad in that sense, then. If they all look the same, it's just a case of what eyeballs do stick on this shape. It could be, could be. Yeah. I mean, that would certainly explain why now suddenly the Powerpuff Girls looks like they're in a completely different Cartoon Network show. Hmm. You could swap out any of the other characters and they'd fit just as well in pretty much any other show that I can think of. Hmm. Of course, when the original show happened and sort of came about, there was definitely a sort of visual similarity to the universe of, say, Dexter's Lab. Yeah. But that was because they were like friends, I think. And they, they were kind of all in it together and they worked on both shows, I think, together. And, but ultimately, they branched off into their own sort of individual things. But in the same breath, though, uh, it, amongst that kind of universe, amongst that style at that time, that was when uh, What a Cartoon was around. Uh, when kind of Nicktoons was starting off. So I had all these shows that were wildly different and they were very separate. So something that was illustrated in the style of, say, Doug, completely separate to something that was illustrated like uh, Spongebob, Cow and Chicken, Dexter's Lab, as you say, the, all these separate things, Ed, Ed and Eddie, um, Courage the Cowardly Dog, all wildly different. Mm-hmm. And as you say now, it's all kind of maybe a little bit clumped together. And I wonder sort of what the decision-making is behind that. Mm. So anyway, I, I, I shan't be watching any more. I, I, I'm not particularly disappointed to say I didn't really think I would. It's, it's, what it feels like is it's like, a, in terms of the writing, mm-hmm. I think the best way to describe it is like, it feels like people who watched the show growing up didn't quite get the jokes and are now writing their own version of it. Ah, okay. It's a much safer style of obvious jokey comedy. Um, Whereas I think the first incarnation with Craig McCracken at the helm took a bit more risk, as I think did many of the shows that you mentioned there. Uh, Of course, Run and Stimpy were the major trailblazers in that respect. And I think the attitude of, okay, let's see how far we can push it and then push it further so we can actually have something in our pocket like banked when the network says, "Oh no, we we can't put all this on the air. You gotta you gotta tame it back a bit." Mm-hmm. So then we'll put in some really extreme stuff, and then they'll let us keep in the the extreme stuff we actually secretly only wanted to put in. You know, so I think that you know there was certainly a lot more kind of it. Not with Doug, obviously, but like, you know, <laughs> <coughs> or the Rugrats. Like there wasn't really you know you didn't get many euphemistic little asides or um, dirty one liners and. You know? Oh no no! You've you've heard the thing about Rugrats, haven't you? The 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 kind of apparent the hidden meaning of Rugrats is that they're all dead or something. Right? Is like, that something someone put on Reddit once? That's something that somebody put on Reddit once. Better. Okay. <laughs> I'm talking about like actual things at the. Oh the right, okay. You mean the real world? Yeah. <laughs> I was actually sort of perfectly willing to to give the the new voices, the benefit of the doubt. And I certainly think that it's a fit in the sense that it's, it is a different show. Mm. It would have perhaps been a harder watch if it had been the original three women who, who played those characters. Cause the last couple of outings where they did play them under a very different directorial style and very different style of comedy, those weren't really very comfortable to watch at all. Yeah. And actually the last kind of um, 
for me, the kind of official closing chapter. It was this very bizarre kind of one-off anniversary special a few years after it was originally cancelled. And Craig McCracken did this, like, really, really hyper-intense, like, special episode of the Powerpuff Girls. It was like a kind of wacky races episode. It's like the very early episodes where everything was a bit more manic, except really, really amped up. Like, everyone is just in, a like, a frenzy. It's sort of unforgiving, I guess. It's unapologetically just, like, you know, rubbing it in your face until your skin peels off. <laughs> and it has this wonderful ending where the um, the bad guy finally defeats them. He finally gets his way, and he takes over the world and puts into effect his plan, the plan that he always had in his back pocket, should he ever take over the world, which is to bring about world peace. <laughs> and they never actually questioned why he wanted to take over the world. They always just beat him up and put him in jail. It's like, no, this was always my plan. You've been holding this up for years and years. And they're like, what? <laughs> that was a funny, like... That's good way around it. Coda to it. Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so speaking of, of of sort of new things that are out, have you seen the trailer to Sausage Party, Ben? Yeah, I, I got a chuckle out of that. Yeah, that I'm not sure a, a 90 minute film would sustain, but it it didn't feel like a trailer to a movie as much as like a college humor video yes. or something like Too Many Cooks or yeah, like, or a side um, gag in The Simpsons or something. Cause, yeah, because they did it in uh, an old Simpsons episode years ago. They did um, cards. They did all the the cards joking with one another, and it looked looked <laughs> it kind of sounded exactly the same mm. as this, but only with you know sausage gags and uh, weirdly designed buns. Yeah, you know what I I really find kind of aggravating about how much social media lets us into like the mind workings of the general public mm. is when people they see something they work out a joke and then they present it to people as though they've cracked this code yeah it's like hey guys i don't know if you've noticed it, but if you look at those buns really closely <laughs> it kind of looks like really <laughs> thanks for the f-ing blueprint <laughs> Well, my favorite. No, my, my, we're talking about cracking codes and stuff. The thing that's annoyed me is that is when you see it, people have, and the, whenever a film like this will get released, maybe ha- every half a year, every year, uh, so often, and and the thing that you see on social media is, ugh, well, I thought it was animation was just for kids, uh, but, but look, they swear, ooh, this is revolutionary, and it, that 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 kind of winds me up. As if, like, Fritz the Cat never happened. This is a thing that, of course, Anomalisa shares in itself. It's, it's Absolutely. It's been bewildering people, the very idea <laughs> that an animated feature film could... Uh, he's sexual intercourse and domestic disquiet on the home front. He goes into a sex shop. What devilry am I watching here? <laughs> I think maybe that for a lot of people, the qualifier for a, an animated feature to be a, a, for adults was for it to be kind of boring <laughs> or about like political unrest right? or about something like a lot of people like uh, care a great deal about. So you have stuff like Bova Rendezvous um, uh, and The Illusionist and uh, Waltz with Bashir mm. and Persepolis and Marion Max. These, by the way, aren't films I think are boring. I think they're all very good films. And also very few of them ever actually kind of knows their way into any sort of mainstream visibility. Mm. And 
Anomalisa hasn't really either, but it's it's done, I think, one of the more sort of commendable efforts in a good long while. Yeah. Um, but it's such a fickle thing to get is this distribution. I mean, thank God, you know, Curzon are here in the UK uh, taking on Anomalisa. Uh, it's not shown in many theatres. I mean, there's two cinemas in Manchester showing it, one in Manchester City Centre uh, and one on the outskirts. That's no good, really, is it? Well, I mean, it's it's not terrible. It's two in a in a city, hmm. you know. I mean, like a lot of cities only have one cinema. I appreciate that. Yes, Manchester is a major media city, but wherever you are in the UK, there's going to be somewhere within driving distance that is playing this film. Uh, it's not brilliant, but it's not also the worst thing in the world either. Uh, if you go onto the Anomalisa UK website, anomalisa.co.uk, they've actually rather efficiently grouped all of the cinemas that are participating in uh, screening it. So, you know, I'm sure people will be able to track it down. Oh, good, good. What did you think of the film specifically then, Ben? I think I actually liked it more than I thought I would, which isn't to say I thought I, I wouldn't. I just sort of felt like the expectation had maybe been built up a bit too much mm-hmm. by the hugely positive feedback people were giving it, you know, across the pond. I sort of expected to maybe be left a bit wanting. And I wasn't really. It actually seemed to deliver everything. And that by the time it wrapped up, I wasn't sort of aching for more. It was a good length. It was a good little study of despair that didn't actually make you want to despair, <laughs> which perhaps has been, you know, as we talked about in the previous episode with something like Synecdoche, New York, you know, sometimes the actual, like, feeling you walk away from a film with can resemble <laughs> the feelings of the characters a bit too much. I think in this film, you know, there's a bit of a sense of, well, that guy's a bit of an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you do feel some sympathy for, yeah. um, for his plight, but at the same time, it's not the most unjustifiable tragedy ever. I think you, you most people, I'm sure, would feel a lot more toward the girl, toward Lisa. Yeah, especially at the end. It's a. I, I certainly. I wanted to see it again straight away. Certainly, I'd, I'd want to go through it and comb through it. Yeah. And uh, there are certain scenes I definitely would feel, you know, I'd want to watch quite a few times. I think also you want to. It's definitely a film that once you've sort of like fully gotten exactly how this universe works and what the story is and why it's important and why that it's a very sort of singular perspective. You do then, yes, want to see it again with that more in mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly a strength of it. And, uh, of course, very well animated. I felt that the tone, the whole atmosphere, the the work that went into just sort of creating the claustrophobia of, you know, the guy holed up in his hotel room. And uh, even when he sort of like ventures out. That... Still surrounded by it, isn't he? By by yeah. the sort of uh, the past and the characters that, that kind of are weighing heavy on his mind. It's like how do you how do you animate a cloud following someone around yeah. without actually showing a cloud? And so there are all sorts of wonderful things done with the camera work and with the music and with the depth of field, even even the reoccurring gags go go so much. You know the 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 things we enjoy. The try the chili or it's zoo size. Those kind of uh, reoccurring gags in the film. They kind of increase that. Is surrounded by that those phrases, and it's funny, but it's it's tragic in a way, isn't it? Yeah. The thing that actually kind of kept flaring up on the day when I went to do the interview that British Airways song. 
right at the beginning. Which I do. You ever fly British Airways? No, no, no. Okay. no well, that song is, ba- you know, the, uh-huh. that's their safety instructional video background music. Right. And the B- British Airways safety instructional video is this awful animation. They've used it, I think, for 10 years. And, you know, the longer I work in animation, the more it bugs me. <laughs> like, how, <laughs> how bad the animation of this video is as that music plays. Yeah. And so that's, that's something else the film will bring to, to audiences. Mm. Is that, and also the way it's sort of like the, the version of it that like we hear in the film, which is of course sort of sung by Tom Noonan in this awful atonal close harmony. <laughs> so yes, of course, we, uh, we have an interview with Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson. Now, Charlie Kaufman, I think we've, we've talked about quite a bit over the last couple of podcasts, and I'm sure everyone does kind of know his films. I'm sure people have seen Being John Malkovich or Adaptation. Duke Johnson, of course, you know, being actually more responsible for the animation side of things, I was very glad was also um, in attendance at this particular junket. Because he actually has a pretty um, decent career himself in the world of American stop-motion TV animation. Hmm. Which is not as explored as perhaps it uh, could or should be by our good selves. There's some nice stuff out there. Have you seen the Community like, Christmas special? Yeah, yeah, I saw that not that long ago, actually. Mm. But the the, partic- but the particular thing that uh, worth highlighting for what I thought about Anomaly, so when I knew I was watching something spectacular, was just just the little things with the uh, the rapid prototyping on the faces, but when he's rubbing his eyes on the phone, mm. that for me... It's nice to see the film use that kind of thing. And for somebody like Duke Johnson, who comes from this this American stop-motion animation world, which doesn't really invest in that in television, but is afforded that within the feature animation world, and he does it extremely well. I think at this juncture, we should uh, actually pass it over to Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson themselves, uh, mainly because, as people are probably picking up, I'm about to lose my fucking voice. <laughs> um <laughs> But uh, I'm sure I'm sure that uh, people are itching to hear the interview anyway. So, uh, without further ado, here's Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson, the directors of Anomalisa. I guess to sort of start from the start, maybe talk a little bit about like the origins of the story itself. Because from what I understand, it wasn't always intended to be animated. Is that right? It was originally a play, what we called a sound play. Uh-huh. The actors were on stage reading scripts, and we had a foley artist on stage. Um, and we had Carter Burwell conducting his music on stage. And the idea was that the imagery would be created in the minds of the audience members. So we did it with the same actors in 2005. Okay. So it was actually performed? It was performed in Los Angeles, yes. Royce Hall. So, so were you, those three actors then, they were always in mind for those characters, or were they cast for that play? They were cast for the play. Okay. And then when... I was approached to do it as a, as a stop-motion animation by Starburns. Um, I went back to the same actors. I wanted mm-hmm. to use them again because we had a very good experience and they were part of the production for me and as far as I was concerned. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you two coming together, um, how did that relationship begin? Um, so I was working at the studio Starburns Industries that uh, was founded by Dino Stamatopoulos who had seen the play and knows Charlie and had asked him for a copy of the script and we had this animation studio and we were looking for something to produce next and Dino mentioned it as a as a possibility like maybe we could 
asked Charlie if we can do this as a movie. Uh, I was excited about that, and we thought it was a great idea, and so Dino approached Charlie. In terms of visual development, did you have a big hand in that, or was it sort of handed over to... No, I mean, Duke and I collaborated on the entire movie, mm -hmm. the look of the movie, and the puppets, and the production design, and, mm -hmm. and everything. It was the animatic, mm -hmm. um, the voice records. So, uh, yeah, there'd been sort of a, a longer period, I guess, between this film and your last film. Mm -hmm. What sort of things were you up to in the interim? Trying to get things made. Uh -huh. That's what I was doing. <laughs> um, wrote a bunch of screenplays and TV pilots. I, I actually um, directed a pilot um, that I had written that didn't get picked up. For, uh, did it for FX. And that was it. Just struggling to get stuff made. I was having a very difficult time. So then I guess the um, crowdfunding, perhaps, Anomalisa, was that sort of the first step of realizing that this would be the next project, I guess, that was... I mean, you want to answer that? Yeah, well, we, so, we, you know, Dino met with Charlie and, and said, you know, can, can we pursue this as an animated film? And, and he said, yeah, you know, if you, can, if you can get the money, then we'll talk about, we'll talk about it, you know, because obviously it's not, it doesn't exist until there's money for it. So we went off on our own and um, sought financing, and we tried some traditional means of seeking money, and it, it wasn't working out, and so we tried Kickstarter. And once it became clear that the Kickstarter was going to be a success, because you know, like, right away, like, if you have, like, a third of it within the first 48 hours or something, then statistically it's going to be successful, and then Charlie and I started talking okay, well, it looks like this is going to happen now. What's that mean? So you mentioned uh, things not necessarily working out going the traditional route. Was there sort of compromises that would have been asked of you guys? Well, I, I mean, it's just that, I mean, we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't go too far with it. We met with a couple companies, and it was just, you know, people liked it, but they, you know, uh, a couple people thought, you know, trying to find ways to sort of monetize it Maybe it could be episodic, or could this be the first of a series, or, you know, things like that. And it became clear to us early on that, you know, we just, the script was all, it didn't even need development, it didn't need, it didn't need, we didn't need... Interference. Interference, <laughs> yeah, executives giving their opinion on anything. We just kind of wanted, we were just inspired to make it, you know. Mm -hmm. So we, we were trying to find a way to do it on our own, basically. Have you guys had sort of bad experiences with that kind of interference before? Well, I mean, I had the bad experience of not being able to get things made, which is kind of like interference in a way. So, um, I mean, somewhat. I, I think, for me, I think it's been, I've been fairly fortunate in, in dealing with people who have let me be. I mean, not, not, not completely, but mostly. For me, it was like working in television was great but it's its own thing and you're working within a system and you know there's schedules and there's budgets and there's um what's the thing practices standards and practices. standards and practices you know you can't say and do everything you want to do and you know there's all these limitations and i was just personally excited about just like making something on you know on our own I suppose as having been adapted to animation, I mean, there are some wonderful moments in the film where it gets sort of metaphysical, like with the face kind of coming loose and things like that, and the, the use of that kind of um, duplicated 
printed faces, you know, to great effect. Did you find that the animation really sort of helped in a meta sense? I mean, I think it's always a matter of um, making something, when you're making something, trying to make it specific to the form in which you're making it, you know. So when it was a radio play, I mean, that's why it's voices, you know, and that's why there was an ambiguity to the dialogue, because I thought it was interesting to, since there was no visual, to um, have the op opportunity for audience members to um, uh, interpret things differently. When it became this, then you, you kind of repurpose it to this, you know, and think about, well, what is it, it you know, visually, and what is it to animate it, and what, how do you utilize the form in, to, to, to affect? Certainly, I, I found one of the, the elements of the film that had a, a tremendous effect was that sense of just loneliness from the set, the hotel set, mm. and the way hotels can be sort of used almost like a character in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and also, in a, it's sort of in other examples of like cinema, like it's, it's a great sort of like setting for characters to sort of be in a bad place. Mm -hmm. And um, was there anything, any sort of like design considerations that sort of when you were sort of building that environment that came to play with that? Well, all of those things that you mentioned, I mean, were things that we discussed as well. And mm -hmm. and not just the set design, but also the camera and the depth of field and, mm -hmm. you know, where the camera is in the room and trying to articulate, you know, his emotional experience in this in this room where where he's isolated or alone or... You the know, sound the, design. The sound design. That's a really big part of it. Yes. Yeah. And the, the room feels different when he's in there alone versus when he's in there with Lisa. The lighting is different and the sound is different. Yeah. Going back to the casting, uh, back to sort of days of the, the sound play, um, I thought Tom Noonan did a fantastic... I mean, everyone did a great job, all three of them. I thought Tom Noonan was really sort of well done in the way that he you know, was able to be everyone and yet the same person. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess would the play have been before Synecdoche, New York? I was actually writing Synecdoche, New York, when I was approached by Carter Burwell um, to participate in this. So, I, and I was struggling with Synecdoche, so I took a break to do this. And, and yeah, so it was. But yeah, Synecdoche was um, shot in two. Well, it was released in two thousand and eight, so we shot in two thousand and seven, I guess. So yeah, I mean, no, I had a good experience with him um, and the, in the play and with Synecdoche, and then with this, and he was also in my pilot. So yeah, I, lo I love working with Tom. I just saw. A, I was watching an old Louis he was in. Uh, the He's other day. great in that Louis. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite. I haven't seen more recent Louis, but have you seen that one where he plays no. a priest? Oh, it's really good. It's this very yeah. sort of uh, needlessly detailed description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ <laughs> to, 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 to children. Christ. He's trying to terrify <laughs> them, and it's really funny and horrifying. That's funny. It'd be great to do uh, learn a bit about your background as well, um, uh, up to sort of Starburns, I guess. Or was Starburns your first? studio or have you had a background after that? Well, I, I, I studied live action filmmaking at, uh, at in film school. I knew, I, I went to NYU and then I worked as a waiter in New York and actually that's how I met Dino Stamatopoulos and we just became friends in New York and then I went off to LA to go to grad school and I invited him to my thesis film premiere and he was doing an animated show on Adult Swim at the time called Moral Oral. Mm -hmm. And he offered to let me direct an episode of his TV show if I got a, if it got another season. It was in the second season. And so I ended up, I'd never 
really actively thought about pursuing animation, but this was an opportunity to direct something. And so I ended up hanging around the studio for a year and sort of learning the craft and kind of falling in love with it. And then I directed an episode of Moral Oral at this studio called Shadow Machine. And, uh, and then Dino and I really hit it off on a, a creative level, our collaboration. And so when he went to do another series called Mary Shelley's Frankenhole, I went on and directed that as well. And then we started our own studio in 2010 to do an animated episode of Community. Um, and then we went on to do another season of, of Frankenhole, and, and then we did a, a, a special for Moral Oral, and we did commercials and music videos and things like that, and kind of building that up. And then, and then we did this. So when you sort of started the approach, I guess, to, to this film, were there any sort of visual cues in your mind, sort of stop motion or otherwise? When things are... Not really. I mean, we, I talked about this a little bit last night. It, it occurred to me, I think, that because... Because I, I don't come from animate like I didn't pursue animation in school or you know I, I didn't really have this sort of like precious there's a lot of people that work in you know specific fields of animation and, and with regards to stop motion I mean that's what I'm most familiar with so I know that there's people that are like sort of purists mm-hmm. and stop motion represents something in their mind specific you know but I didn't I don't I don't have that same sort of attachment to it so I didn't feel like it had to be something specific I mean I I was a little indoctrinated you know into some of the rules of like you can't you can't do this and you can't do this that's breaking the rules of stop motion which was so that's one of the things that was so great about collaborating with Charlie because he doesn't have any of those inhibitions with regards to it it's like let's do this and then I'd be like well, I don't think we, you're allowed to do that and he'd be like well why <laughs> and then I'd be like well yeah okay I, you're right and then we we were able to kind of invent this new sort of approach to things. That's why it doesn't, I think that's why it doesn't look like anything else, which is one of the things, you know, I think we're most proud of. Mm. The sort of nod, I suppose, in the name of the hotel um, to Fregoli syndrome. From your perspective, does the character suffer from that condition? Or it does not. Or, it was the sort of the genesis of the idea when I'd read about it. I was looking for, you know, a, a way to use three actors and have one of them play a lot of parts um, because I had a limited budget and and I was doing this radio stage thing and it, we didn't have time. So I'd read about this and I thought it was kind of metaphorically interesting for the character to suffer from a metaphorical version of it, not a literal version of it. And um, originally I had written because it was the second play that I was that was going to be part of the evening that I had written. Originally, the Cohen brothers had done the second play, but they they were gone, and I needed to write something to replace them. And so I didn't want it to be under my name, so I used I used Francis Fregoli as a pseudonym. And the name of the hotel in the play is the Millennium, which is an actual hotel in Cincinnati. They wouldn't allow us to use their name in the movie, so we just decided to use it, call it the Fregoli, just sort of for fun. Inside joke. You mentioned the, the Coen Brothers there, and a film that this definitely put me in mind of in certain respects was Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. Um, like I was saying before about that way, the hotel kind of can, can really. Did, does their work have any sort of uh, influence, I guess, on, on you as a filmmaker? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, and I, I love Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. I think it. I haven't seen all of their movies, and I haven't seen some of the recent ones, and I haven't seen the new one. But yeah, I'd say it's my favorite 
Coen Brothers movie of the ones I've seen. You know, I, I think it's an amazing movie. Um, I don't know if there's like a literal sort of connection. I mean, certainly, both in hotels. yeah, certainly when you're making a movie that takes place in a hotel, you know, you you think of other movies that take place in hotels, and you know, we talked about Barton Fink, we talked about The Shining, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, things like that. But we didn't like, you know, we weren't cribbing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's certainly you know those influences. Yeah, are that's a great movie in our minds. I guess on the subject of film, like I was saying, what's so sort of nice about this film that it's, it's such a breath of fresh air that it has a very independent spirit to it. Um, but it has found this sort of wider distribution, which is wonderful. Um, and there is a... <laughs> <laughs> it didn't well, go that wide in America, actually. Not, not, as, not as much. I mean, it was purchased by a major studio, mm-hmm. yeah. but we were sort of hoping that if it's purchased by this major studio, that means it's going to go wide. Right. But it ultimately didn't go much further than a small independent film would typically and, go. And less than some small independent films yeah. in terms of... Uh, yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. But we have high hopes for... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly very much anticipated over here. Everyone I've been talking to coming to see it. That's cool. Um, I was sort of curious. Do you have any sort of interest in sort of the world of independent films as regards animation? Because it's a very small, I guess, niche area. But I was sort of curious if, like, certain filmmakers like Don Hertzfeld. We, we love Don, Don Hertzfeld. Yeah, we now know Don because <laughs> uh-huh. um, we met him in Austin at Fantastic Fest. His his film opened our film, uh-huh. so um, World of Tomorrow, which we we loved. And actually, the amazing. man who financed our film after Kickstarter, Keith Calder, and his company Snoot, is financing Don's feature. Yeah. So we're we're excited about that. A, yeah, he, I think he, he's great, and he's a really cool guy too. Certainly, the because the, the previous feature he did, which was that sort of a combination of three short films, yeah, yeah. which again sort of it didn't quite. It, it certainly is a hugely loved and respected film, and it's on like Netflix and stuff. But sure. it didn't seem like it got the visibility it deserved. Well, I never so, heard of it, and I, mm-hmm. you know, until I, you know, somebody told me to check it out on Netflix, mm-hmm. and then I watched it and I loved it, and I was like, "This is brilliant! Why are, mm-hmm. why don't people know about this?" But you know, that's, because it's different. That's because the problem. people can't. Yeah, I think that you know, people can't accept <laughs> that animation <laughs> doesn't look like mm-hmm. Pixar. You know. They're looking at the sort of aggregated like critical feedback to Anomalisa. Like it does seem like uh, the overall like response has been really positive. And did, were you expecting perhaps based on what you just said, were you expecting perhaps a bit more resistance because of that? Well, we I think I think we were expecting nothing at first, right. and then out of Telluride and Venice and Toronto and the reaction, the critical reaction and Paramount picking it up, we were expecting everything, you know, and so then. Those I think we were expecting nothing, expecting everything, and then now we're kind of expecting nothing again because our our hopes, you know, the the reviews. I mean, certainly out of Toronto before it opened, um, before the movie opened, we were, and everybody says this, uh, so I don't even know how to verify, but we were the best reviewed movie of 2015, mm-hmm. and then you know when it opened there was there were some things that brought the the numbers down, but we were at what 100 percent. Yeah, we were at 100 percent Rotten Tomatoes for a while. Yeah. I think our expectations were grand at first, and I thought I think we thought, oh, this is going to be kind of a game changer potentially. You know, people will start looking at animation differently. We'll have the thing that you were talking about with Don, the sort of opportunity to start seeing different kinds of animation in the world, stuff for adults, stuff that's sort of eccentric. Um, and then and then and then we got nominated for every award, you know, that was possible. <laughs> for us. 
and then it was like and then and then it just inside out you know beat us at everything and then it's like people were kind of like i don't know it's just it was a weird roller coaster so thank you very much to charlie kaufman and duke johnson and as mentioned before you can learn more about the film including where it's playing near you at anomalisa.co.uk if you've not yet seen it it really is worth checking out So before we wrap things up, don't forget that this is not a cartoon. Squiggly's very own screening of international animated short films is coming back this uh, Saturday. So if you're in Lancaster on the 26th of March at 2.15pm in the afternoon, you might want to head up to the Dukes in Lancaster to see our programme. And the same programme is happening at home in Manchester on the same day, the 26th of March, at 3.40pm. But for that screening, we'll be joined by special guest Felix Massey from In The Air is Christopher Gray for a special Q&A. So get yourselves down to either Lancaster or down to Manchester for some fantastic animated short films. And if you'd like to see the programme of films in This Is Not A Cartoon, please log on to thisisnotacartoon.com. Also, if you haven't had enough of animation by then, and why would you have enough of animation? Get yourselves to the Leeds Young Film Festival, because they've got their animation strand that's happening that weekend. Uh, One event in particular I'd like to invite you all down to is the Great Big Squiggly Family Animation Quiz, which happens on Sunday, the 27th of March at 1.30pm at the Carriage Works Theatre. It is free. Uh, and it's going to be a, a family-friendly version of the Squiggly Animation Quiz. And it'd be great to see some people down there, some families competing. Uh, there's some fabulous prizes to be won. And if you'd like to find out what else is happening at the Leeds Young Film Festival that weekend, you can log on to leedsyoungfilm.com. For the benefit of our Swiss listeners, another touring film programme to mention is Short Film Nights, which will kick off its first leg on Friday, April 1st in Zurich. The screenings are a mix of live action and animation, including my new film, Kleeman Throw, and will similarly take place at two venues on the same night, kicking off at 8.30pm at the Art House Le Paris, and at 9pm at the Art House Uto. There's some great animation work on offer, such as Paulie Caban's Storm Hits Jacket, Frederick Siegel's Ruben Leaves, and Marcel Borelli's Lutzen, among others. And for more info and to buy tickets, visit kurtzfilmnacht.ch. Also, for any Italians out there, the film is set to be screening as part of the Skepto International Film Festival, which kicks off April 13th, again alongside some brilliant works such as Mute in a Single Life by Job Yoris Amariki, Love by Rekka Buxi, Simon Cartwright's Man O' Man, and Constantine Bronzett's We Can't Live Without Cosmos. Exact times and venue info to come, but you can visit the site at skepto.net for updates. And while you're visiting websites, of course, get yourself over to squiggly.com. Catch up with all our latest coverage. You can also like us on facebook.com slash squigglymagazine and follow us on Twitter at squiggly. I'm also on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. underscore S underscore Henderson. And special thanks, of course, to this episode's guests who you can follow at Anomalisa Movie and co-director Duke Johnson is at Dukulele. Of course, we'd love to hear from you all, so anything you'd like to get in touch about regarding this episode, or pretty much anything that crosses your mind, give us a shout on Twitter or via email, ben at squiggly.co.uk and steve at squiggly.co.uk. So I'm off to pop a decongestant, or several, so until next episode, happy animating!